right, well, turn with me, if you will, to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've been journeying through the book of uh, Thessalonians, and we'll continue this journey this morning, looking at chapter 2, begin reading with verse 1. We'll read together down to verse 6. First Thessalonians chapter 2, and begin reading with verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation to man. We thank you for the privilege we have of hearing your word, of listening to your very heart in scripture. We ask this morning that you would be with me, that you would uh, take the feeble words that I speak and make them words of power and words of truth. And may you open our hearts. May you Make the word that is spoken fruitful and productive in our hearts so that we can uh, be comforted and transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we ask this, O oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. Title of the sermon, A Solitary Purpose. There was a mid-19th century Danish philosopher who once said, Soren Kierkegaard was his name, and he once said that purity of heart is to will one thing. Now, I read that several years ago, and the first time I read it, it didn't strike me as being anything profound. I thought, well, it makes sense. But for all of us who live on this side of Genesis chapter 3, purity of heart, willing one thing, seems to be daunting, if not impossible. In fact, if we go throughout our average day and we begin to evaluate our actions, and we really think seriously and one problem is many of us do not take the time or perhaps do not have the time to think critically about our day, to reflect on things that we've done. But if we stop and we think about our decisions, we think about uh, things that we've said or things that we've done, oftentimes we can evaluate our motives and realize that perhaps there was something going on that was more than met the eye. Perhaps there was a deeper purpose, a deeper motive driving us to do things. So I think many of us live our lives much like Edward McKinney, who was an Irishman who lived in the middle of the 1800s, and he worked for a wealthy landlady uh, in Ireland. And he was uh, listening one day to her daughter sing. And of course, being his landlady, he did so out of respect. And the landlady was convinced that her daughter could sing beautifully. And um, Mr. McKinney found out that she could not. But he listened intently, and finally he had all he could take, and so he turns to his landlady and very politely says, My lady, 
If she were killed for her beautiful voice, you could take comfort in the fact that she died innocently. <laughs> well, the mother simply smiled and nodded, oblivious to the fact that he had given her a backhanded compliment. Well, I think oftentimes we live our lives in a very similar way. We say things, perhaps to avoid offending someone, or maybe for reasons that we have convinced ourselves are true, but down deep inside there's something else. There's an ulterior motive, there's a hidden agenda, which is driving things that we say and things that we do. And so really it's at the heart of Paul's message, this concept, this, this solitary purpose that Paul is, is seeking to convince the church there at Thessalonica that when he came, he and Silas came bearing the good news of the gospel of God, that they did not come with flattery, they did not come with ulterior motives, but rather they came with one solitary purpose. And so if we were to look at the pa uh, passage, I think in, in order to understand this solitary purpose, there are three components or three elements of it, one that Paul spends more time talking about than the others. Uh, the first is that he, that he came with one message. Secondly, that he came with one mission. And thirdly, that he came with one motive. And so we'll look at each of these uh, in our text this morning. So Paul begins really by referencing a, a comment that he had made previously in chapter 1, which a few weeks back we, uh, we saw when, he, when, when Pastor Robert delivered the, uh, the message on the gospel, how that uh, Paul came bearing the gospel. In fact, in verse 5, he says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And it was because of the gospel, not because of their ability necessarily to articulate or their ability to be superior in their flattery, or in their uh, ability to convince others, but rather the power of the gospel, which Paul later tells us is nothing more, nothing less than the resurrecting power that raised Christ from the dead, the Holy Spirit that worked with the gospel in order to bring them to repentance. And so Paul is intent on the fact that when he came to the church there in Thessalonica, he did not come in vain. That's what the first verse, the end of, first of uh, verse 1 says there in our text. Another way of reading the Greek word that's translated in vain is empty-handed. So you might say that Paul was telling them, I did not come to you, and you are witnesses of the fact that I did not come to you empty-handed. So if he didn't come empty-handed, what did he bring? Well, he elaborates on this in verse 2 when he says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, you know we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul identifies the message that was delivered to be nothing more, nothing less than the gospel of God wrapped in human adversity. Now, whenever we think of the proclamation of the gospel, sometimes we automatically think to the, the byproduct, the end result, the conversion of souls, uh, justification of those who are sinful in the sight of God, ongoing sanctification as those who are believers hear the word preached and their hearts are changed and transformed into the image of Christ. But when Paul presents the gospel, he does so by wrapping it in the context of adversity, context of conflict. And he does so for two reasons, and one I'll touch on later, but uh, mainly the two reasons are these, that by revealing suffering as the context of proclaiming this one solitary message, he underscores the boldness that is expressed by the apostle and the reason for it. 
Not only does he say we came proclaiming the gospel, but he said he did so with boldness. And then secondly, he introduces the uh, next point, really, that he makes throughout the heart of the text, which is his reason for doing so, his motive. But I want us, before we go there, to pause and to think about the fact that Paul came declaring one message, and this one message was the gospel of God. The gospel, the pure and simple gospel, the good news that we who were enemies of God, we who were estranged from him, disconnected from him, dead in our sins, that we have been reconciled to him by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his only son. This message is the sole message, the solitary message that the apostle brought to the church of Thessalonica. It was the heart of his message. I think sometimes as we progress throughout the Christian life, as we grow in sanctification and as we grow in, in uh, purity, I think we think that we move beyond the gospel. But the gospel permeates. It's not something that we learn, that we hear, and then we get over and we're ready to go on to the next phase or the next chapter of Christianity. But rather, the gospel is the heart of Christianity. And so Paul presents the fact that he came bearing this one message. And this one message was presented in the, in the context of conflict and adversity. Paul says we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God. Notice that Paul's boldness did not derive from his sense of, of uh, comfort with his own qualification or a sense of self-worth, or he did not attribute his boldness to his education, to his superior upbringing at the feet of Gamaliel, the Pharisee of Pharisees in the ancient Near East. Rather, he simply attributed it to the source of the gospel itself. The reason that he was able to declare the gospel of God boldly was because it originated from God. It was not the good news of man. It was the good news that came from God. And so Paul is first providing an explanation how that in the midst of conflict, in the midst of adversity, he and his fellow missionary could be bold in proclaiming the very truth of God's message, the, the gospel itself. And I think sometimes whenever we become stuck between a rock and a hard place, whenever there's conflict and adversity in our life, the first thing that we are prone to do is say, why? Aren't we sincerely proclaiming the gospel, whether it be if you're called to a teaching vocation or, uh, you know, as the majority of us in this church are, are not called to be a, a teaching elder. And so maybe as you go about your everyday life and you interact with the people in your work environment and you feel like that you have, you have as much as you've had the opportunity that you've shared the gospel in both how you live as well as in what you say to others, but yet there's conflict, there's adversity, there's trial. And so our first tendency is to say, why? Why is this happening to me? Paul was not surprised by the adversity. He was not surprised by the conflict, nor was he deterred by it. He expected roadblocks, human weaknesses, and suffering. He knew that over all of this, God is and would be victorious. And so in his earlier references, we've already seen in verse 5, he reiterates the fact that when he came bearing the gospel, it was not in his own ability, but rather it was by the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So he was bowed in the adversity that he experienced in proclaiming the gospel of truth because he knew the source of the message was God himself. He had one message, and it was that solitary message that he was intent on proclaiming. 
I fear that sometimes in the world that you and I live in, we are tempted to add to, to supplement the gospel of God. We look around us and we see how that uh, we are living in an increasingly hostile environment to Christianity, to the pure, unadulterated uh, message of biblical truth. And our, our, we're somewhat torn. Our thought deviates to, well, how can I make this message, which at its very core is is offensive to some because, as Christ said, uh, the words that he speaks, they bring judgment, they bring life. And so at its very core, the gospel is adversarial because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Therefore, they will reject it. They will have none of it. And yet we live in a culture where we have to grasp, we have to uh, wrestle with what it means to present the gospel, the truth of this message of God, in a way that our culture can hear and understand. And so sometimes we're tempted to add to the gospel, to supplement it, instead of bringing this one solitary message. And also, I might say, instead of focusing on the greatest evangelist of all, which is not you and me, it's not the Apostle Paul, even though he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament and he did a pretty good job of being a missionary. Say that tongue-in-cheek. He was an excellent missionary, perhaps the missionary of all missionaries. However, the reality remains that the greatest evangelist, the greatest missionary is the Holy Spirit, that it is the Spirit of God that draws all mankind to the gospel. And so... For the Apostle Paul, the proclamation of this one message came in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that when men heard him preach, when they heard him declare the gospel of God, they saw a life empowered by boldness because his heart was captured by truth. And I think oftentimes in our own lives, we, uh, we start asking ourselves the question, what more can I do? What, in what way can I make this message which at its very heart is adversarial, more palatable to the people uh, in our society. I don't think we should be obsessed with that. I don't think we should think too uh, critically about it. Rather, I think we should simply bring the one message of the truth of God, which is that God is reconciled to man through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing that Paul declares in uh, chapter 2, verses 3, through the first part of, of verse 4 is his one mission. Not only did he care, uh, come declaring one message, he also came for one mission. He was emboldened by the same God who is the source of this good news to proclaim the truth of the gospel even amidst adversity and conflict. And so in verses 3 through 4a, he says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God, we have been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. He nods there in the direction of what we'll talk about in just a moment, which is the motive. What was his motive? What was that solitary purpose? But here he's touching on the one mission and where that mission came from. It came from God who commissioned Paul, who commissioned his church to go into all the world and make disciples of all men. And it was because God had entrusted the delivery of the gospel to him who identified himself as the chief of sinners, who saw himself as not being qualified in his own merit as being a recipient of this great call, but rather the call itself was a work of God's grace. And so he knew that the nature of the mission defined for him his motive. The fact that it is a mission 
from God himself. Later he reiterates this when he's talking to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4 when he says that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. In other words, if you know what your mission is, then you're not going to be tempted to become entangled with civilian endeavors, civilian pursuits. You're not going to put this great military mission, if you're in the military, which is the reference he was using, on hold so you can go start your own business. But rather, you are going to be faithful to the mission, the one mission and the one message that's been entrusted to you. It is because of this mission that Paul proclaims It is because of this mission that Paul can be confident in the very victory of God. He knows that he is sent because of God. In fact, Pastor Robert mentioned the first Sunday uh, that we started uh, 1 Thessalonians. He referenced the fact that when Paul was there in Philippi, he had this vision that Uh, he and Silas would be sent into Macedonia and uh, how that when they were at Philippi, of course, they suffered there at the hand of uh, the Philippians. They were imprisoned and uh, it was there that not only amidst their imprisonment did God give them the blessing of the salvation of the jailer, but also God uh, brought to the church in the context of conflict daily those who should trust in the Lord Jesus. And so Paul knew that his arrival in Thessalonica was not arbitrary, that it was not coincidental that it was not something of his own devise, but rather he was on mission from God. And the very nature of that mission, the source of that mission, enabled him to maintain his focus, to have a solitary purpose, even in the midst of conflict. In the book Band of Brothers, which I'm sure some of you have read, uh, Stephen Ambrose describes an observation that's made by Lieutenant Welsh who was a lieutenant in the 101st Airborne Easy Company. And in fact, I believe it's this book that uh, those of you who've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, that it was based on. But essentially, the the book details various accounts, various missions that Easy Company was sent on all throughout the European theater. And there was one in particular, close to the end of the war, that they were sent on, and they were just surrounded by carnage and and wreckage and uh, death on every side. It was a small band, a a group of men who were given uh, various missions throughout Europe. And so they were surrounded by death, and, and he records this observation by Lieutenant Welsh there in the midst of death and dying. He says, Lieutenant Welsh remembered walking around among the sleeping men and thinking to himself that they had looked at and smelled death all around them all day but never even dreamed of applying the term to themselves. They hadn't come here to fear. They hadn't come to die. They had come to win. And I think in that description, Ambrose captures the heart of what Paul is articulating, which is that if we know our mission, then our mission influences our perspective. Our mission drives our purpose. Our mission drives our motive. And if that mission, part of that mission is one message, then we understand that we are to be true to that message and that God in his grace and mercy will give us the strength and boldness to proclaim that message regardless of what happens, regardless of conflict, regardless of adversity. And so really what Paul is doing, I think, is preaching the gospel to himself. Yes, he's sharing it with the church of Thessalonica, 
but he's reminding himself of his solitary purpose in the context of the one message he came delivering to them, calling them to be witnesses of the fact that he came bearing that one message, of the one mission that he consistently throughout this passage reminds them and asks them to witness, to bear witness to the fact that this was his mission sent from God, this was his message, and that because that message came from God himself, the result was success. Now, if you measure success by worldly standards, you would look at Paul's endeavors at Philippi, Paul's endeavors at Thessalonica, and you might not judge him well. And this is really one of the key characteristics that you and I can bear in mind whenever we're examining our own motives. Because we will inevitably define success by who we're working for. We will define success by who our master is. And for the Apostle Paul, and we're going to really see this in just a minute, he served an audience of one. He did not labor and, and endure conflict and adversity and, and boldly declare the gospel because he sought favor and praise from man. But rather, he sought the approval of God and God alone. And so this drives us really to the heart of the passage, which is found in chapter 2, verses, the second part of verse 4 down through verse 6, which is the one motive that the Apostle Paul talks about. He says, We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Earlier he had said that his appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. And so he lists really six things that we can look at and quantify, six explanations, whether they were given preemptively, assuming that people were going to say these things about his motives, or if they were given as a, as a result of other people criticizing him, regardless of what the case may be, he says that he did not come uh, due to six different reasons. One, error. He did not come because his message was an erroneous one. He did not come because, like many charlatans and, and would-be preachers of the day, he had an idea that he wanted to profit from. Quite frankly, he knew that he would never profit in the secular sense of the word, this side of heaven. But he came bearing the truth of God. Secondly, immorality. Some commentaries believe that there was an allegation made against the Apostle Paul after he left the church in Philippi of immoral behavior because many of the converts at Philippi were women. And so they said mean things and crude things about him. Here, perhaps he's addressing those allegations head on. Nor an attempt to deceive, seeking pleasure from man. Then he says flattery, smooth talking, or, or greed. None of these were what drove the Apostle Paul. None of these made him tick. What drove him, what motivated him, was something very simple. He says, we speak not to please man, but to please God. How we define success is a direct reflection of who we're working for. We speak not to please man, but to please God. So the one motive, the solitary purpose. I said earlier that Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, said that purity of heart is to will one thing. And I expressed at least my realization that this becomes very difficult given our fallen hearts. This ultimately ties in perfectly well with what Robert preached last Sunday when we saw at the end of, of chapter 1 that 
Paul says that God has saved us, redeemed us from idols. And the reality is that if you really want to know your idol, have the God-given grace, have, take the time to examine your motives. Now, motives are not easily examined, at least not like behavior, not like actions. But motives are what drives us to do what we do. Paul says that God tests our hearts. So in a sense, this makes sense of adversity. Perhaps this is where Paul came to peace with the reality that he was faithful to the mission, faithful to the message, and yet he suffered. Because in the midst of that adversity, he was bowed, not because his motive was to be highly regarded by man, but because his motive was to please God and God alone. And so... Paul was able, and I suggest that you and I are able to make sense of adversity because we know that God sometimes uses adversity, not always, but sometimes uses adversity and conflict to purify our motives, to show us our hearts. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10, when God tells Israel, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So God is testing the heart. And we should look at this conflict. We should look at the adversity that Paul is describing here as not something that's insurmountable. It's not something that was designed to deter him from the message or the mission. But rather we should see it as a God-given opportunity. I believe when he says that God tests our hearts, he was perhaps reflecting on the previous experiences he had had. After all, he was a Roman citizen. One thing that he often appealed to when he traveled from place to place and was persecuted was that they could not imprison a Roman citizen unlawfully. But it was in those moments, perhaps, I know for me, speaking personally, it is often in the moments of conflict that God is able to reveal the hidden purposes of my heart to me, the idols of my heart the secret masters, the secret taskmasters that demand obeisance, that demand allegiance that I oftentimes inadvertently give to them unwillingly, perhaps unknowingly. So Paul is declaring here his one motive, his solitary purpose, what drives him, what forces him onward is the fact that he seeks to please God and not man. Now, does this mean that God can only use our good intentions or our good motives, our good deeds, rather, uh, that are done for the right reason? No, I, I don't think so. In fact, Paul himself answers this question in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, where he states that some preach Christ out of rivalry and envy and selfish ambition and not sincerely, and others preach Christ out of goodwill. But what's Paul's response? Only those who preach Christ's gospel out of a sincere motive, a sincere heart, are, are truly affecting change in the kingdom? No, his reply is, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, this is his words, not mine, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Now, please do not hear what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that that absolves us of the responsibility of allowing the Holy Spirit to blow open the windows of our hearts so that we become aware of our ulterior motives. What it is saying, praise God, is that God is able to use us in spite of ourselves. 
is that God in his love and mercy takes good things done for wrong reasons and often works those out so that he is glorified and his kingdom is built up. So if we know what our God-given mandate from this passage is, that we are to apply it through searching our own heart, that we are to apply it through asking God to give us insight into our ulterior motives, how might we confront ulterior motives in our own lives? Again, ulterior motives are not something that you can see on the surface, not something other people can often see and know automatically. However, the origin of every ulterior motive is an idolatrous heart. And I'm going to give a couple examples, and you could create, no doubt, many of your own, but um, if you give to the church, and according to scripture, we should give to the church, we should give of our time, of our talents, of our resources, but if you give, hoping to have a tax write-off, and that's your solitary purpose, then that's revealed your idol. But if you give, knowing that the tax write-off is simply an added bonus, but the main reason you're giving is for the upbuilding and the up Uh, keeping of the kingdom of God, then you know what's driving you is a pure heart. What's driving you is the command of Christ. And I give that as an example. We can think of plethora examples. For instance, if you seek to be involved in um, a position of leadership in your workplace or in the church or some other area of life, and you do so not so you can make a difference or not so you can be involved or be supportive or serve, but rather so you can and I know I'm being bluntly, forgive me, but rather so you can massage your ego, then you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And I think too often in life we simply go without considering why we do what we do. If something seems to be the right thing to do, if something seems to be good, then we do it without allowing the light of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and show us those hidden idols. So the way that this ties in with what we've been learning last week is Your motive ultimately reveals your idol. If you are seeking to please man, if you are seeking to please others, if you are seeking to please yourself, or if you are seeking to please God, those are things that will increasingly become apparent, sometimes, oftentimes, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of adversity. Now, in conclusion, we look at all three of these things, this one message, one mission, one motive? How do we piece them all together to see this solitary purpose, which is the heart of what Paul is getting at? I I tried to think of uh, illustrations that would help us understand this, and I think perhaps um, J.D. Bonner is the only one in here that will know the word I'm going to use, but I I looked it up, and apparently there's an optometrist, can't even say an optometrist, (laughs) an optometrist's instrument uh, for testing individual lenses on on each eye during an eye exam. It's called an optometer. And, um, or or, I'm sorry, a foropter. There you go, J.D., did I get it right? Foropter. It's called a foropter, but basically it's something that the uh, optometrist uses during an eye exam to measure your uh, vision for each eye. And I've recently had an eye exam, and I, I noticed that sometimes one, in fact, one of my eyes is weaker than the other. I don't know how common that is, but for me, that's the case. And so he, had, he took two different lenses, 
and held them up to my eyes in order to enable me to see 2020. And I suggest that's what the Apostle Paul is doing with the three elements of the text that we looked at this morning. The one message, the one mission, and the one motive ultimately enable us to have a solitary purpose, a solitary perspective, so that we know that what's driving us is not the mere mission of man, but what's driving us is the very heart of God. And so I trust that as we hear the heart of the apostle, and we think throughout this upcoming week and throughout our lives, and I encourage you, in fact, I challenge you, to start thinking more critically why you do what you do, and to ask yourself the question, what is my motive? Because any motive that is other than seeking the pleasure of God is an idolatrous one. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, our Savior, the one who came to give sight to blind eyes, the one who came to give us life and life more abundantly. And we know, O oh God, that in the proclamation of truth, whether it be in our lives lived in public or in actually preaching your gospel, there are times that adversity teaches us our motives and we don't like them. But Father, help us to see such instances as your grace and your love to us and give us grace regardless of our motives to cling to the cross of Christ so that we too, with the Apostle Paul, might say, I seek to please God and not man. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name, for his sake and glory. Amen.